The reading is taken from St. Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, beginning at verse 12. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house, he he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had said, told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened. And one by one they said to him, Surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for Sabbath. We thank you for your word. We ask that you would illuminate it this morning. We ask that you would speak to us and meet with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we get to look at um, this unusual but significant meal, Um, often significant events, significant birthdays are celebrated with particular meals. I remember my 40th birthday, um, we, I remember it was only three or four years ago, Um, and um, 
we, were, uh, we managed to cram 24 people for a sit-down meal in, our, in the back room of our house, uh, a memorable occasion. We also remember um, a joint 50th birthday celebration at Raymond Blanc's Manoir, which we looked forward to for many months beforehand. Um, here we have perhaps one of the most, if not the most significant meal in human history. Perhaps the artists among you are thinking about Leonardo da Vinci's mural of The Last Supper. And besides the Lord's Prayer itself, these verses are perhaps the most recited, the most well-known verses um, by Christians. There is much disagreement surrounding them, and much ink has been spilt. Let me set the scene The Passover celebration is about to begin, in which Jews celebrate and remember how God rescued them from slavery in Egypt and brought them into freedom. This involves uh, one person from each household bringing a lamb to the temple for it to be sacrificed. And there's a, they say that uh, over, well, it could be around 250,000 lambs, if, if Josephus' numbers are correct. Uh, that's the kind of scale that we're talking about here. Jerusalem is crammed with people. Males from, that live within 15 miles of Jerusalem would come to bring a lamb for it to be sacrificed. So we're in the middle of a very busy city. Jesus is entering the last day of his life. His life on earth, I should say. He is hunted and wanted by the authorities, but obviously they're waiting for the right moment. To arrest him at the wrong time would cause a riot. They're choosing their time carefully. If you like, this is the calm before the storm. And what do we see from these verses that we've read this morning? Well, the first thing that I noticed was that things that are insignificant to the world are significant to God in verses 12 to 16. From an everyday perspective, 13 men sharing a meal in a room is neither here nor there. And this was happening across Jerusalem. Conrad and I visited Jerusalem a few years ago, and we remember going to a possible location where this meal could have taken place, and it was rather underwhelming. It's just a room, and yet an ordinary room is host to extraordinary events. You see, things that seem insignificant to the world are significant to God. And we see some people involved in the preparations for this that are not named. There is a man carrying a water jug. Jesus gives very uh, specific instructions to his disciples. It's uh, interesting to know how did he arrive at this plan. There's a man carrying a water jug who will meet you, follow him, go to the, the house he enters and ask Um, And um, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Here we have two unnamed people whose contribution may seem insignificant through the eyes of the world. But actually, they are 
it is incredibly significant. They're helping to make preparations for perhaps the most significant meal in human history. Things that seem insignificant to the world are significant to God. It's interesting that a man carrying a water jar is not something that you would see in in that culture. That would have stood out that women were normally uh, responsible for collecting water and carrying the jar. So for a man to be loitering with intent on a street corner waiting for two chaps to come along um, would have looked a bit odd. Perhaps it was a bit embarrassing for him. And yet this seemingly insignificant action has significance in the kingdom of God. This week has seen the death of one of the greatest minds of the 21st century, Stephen Hawking. Absolutely brilliant mind. And yet Stephen Hawking painted for us a picture of an incredibly vast universe. And towards the end of his life, his particular take on that became clearer and clearer that this universe is one that spontaneously created itself. Such a view of life makes any human life a mere speck on the horizon. But... If God does exist, then numbers alone are not enough to speak to significance. You see, things that are insignificant to the world are significant to God. And I think this morning, the Lord wants to encourage us that he sees the seemingly insignificant things that we do. And says, they may look insignificant to the world, but they're not insignificant to me. I see these things that you do for me, even if no one else does. Perhaps it's caring for an elderly friend or relative. Perhaps it's writing regularly to somebody who is struggling with life or struggling with their faith in God. Perhaps it's giving a lift to church every week to someone who otherwise wouldn't be able to make it. Perhaps there are situations where you've looked slightly foolish, whatever the cultural equivalent is of standing with a water jar. God sees that. It's not insignificant to him. He delights in your faithfulness. Do not underestimate the value of these things in the kingdom of God. Things that are insignificant to the world are significant to God. The second thing that I see in this scene as it unfolds is the role of human choice in the unfolding plans of God, verses 17 to 21. In verses 17 and 18, uh, It says that when evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. The Passover meal has begun. The last day of Jesus' earthly life has begun. God's big rescue plan for humanity is underway. But it is not at the expense of human freedom. 
Jesus says, that, begins to say that he will be betrayed, that someone eating dinner in that very room will betray him. Perhaps he even had Psalm 41 in mind where it says, Even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. You see, the scriptures throughout history are clear that Jesus will be betrayed, but they leave it open as to exactly who that person will be. Jesus knows that this is Judas. And we see in other gospel accounts of this scene that he he names, so he hands the bread to Judas and identifies him. Jesus sees into his heart. Judas has managed to hide his disillusionment and his disappointment and hardened heart from the other disciples, but he hasn't managed to hide it from Jesus. Jesus sees what other people do not see. And Jesus does not condemn Judas. These words, woe to you, uh, woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man, is not a condemnation as such, but a warning, if you like, a plea. Judas, there is still time to turn back. This is a warning from Jesus, and he warns while there is still hope. Those of you that are parents will know that it's kindest and wisest to issue a warning first before punishment is issued. In my moments of uh, impetuousness, I have at times issued punishment with no warning. But that gives no no chance to make amends. It is kinder and wiser as a parent to give a warning first and then the punishment. We see Jesus saying to Judas... Will you not stop? There is still hope. Jesus sees right into the heart of Judas, sees he is about to betray him, but does not stop pursuing him right until the point of no return. But he does not stop Judas. He lets him walk. But Judas is not a helpless victim of his circumstances. The scriptures must play out, but somehow, mysteriously woven together, Judas is also responsible for his actions. He is free to choose, and it is precisely because he is free to choose that Jesus says, there will be consequences if you do this. Woe to that one who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. In other words, it would be better for him if the capacity to choose had been taken entirely out of his hands. We see somehow mysteriously the role of human choice in the unfolding plans of God. The plans of God God is on the throne. God is sovereign. His plans unfold, but somehow human freedom is at play as well. And we look at Judas and think maybe there are things we can learn here. There are things that you and I can hide from other people, but Jesus sees what's really going on in your heart. He sees perfectly the condition of every human heart. 
In what form have warnings come to you from God in the past? Is God warning you today? Do you see this as the kindness of God who warns us while there is still hope, who will not stop pursuing you? Or maybe you've experienced betrayal, perhaps from a spouse or a friend or someone at work. Someone that you thought you could trust has turned their back on you. Know today, know this morning, that this, even this, has been part of the experience of God himself on earth. When you bring that sense of betrayal to God, you don't bring it to someone who is aloof or indifferent, but somebody who knows what it is to be betrayed. Someone who has eaten bread with me at the same table has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus knows. And so we see that things that seem insignificant to the world are significant to God. And we see the role of human choice in the unfolding plans of God. And thirdly, we see a God who loves and rescues despite human failure in verses 22 to 25. As we look at this Last Supper, and perhaps we think about Leonardo da Vinci's mural and other paintings that have been created, it gives the the impression that all is well, that everyone is on the same page, and they know exactly what is about to happen, and they're gathering and rallying around Jesus, making the most of these last few hours with him. This could not be further from the truth We know already that Judas is about to betray Jesus and the rest of the disciples are in denial that it could even be them at all. In verse 19 it says they were saddened and one by one they said, surely not I. And here we kind of, it's hard to guess the exact atmosphere but it's a mixture of sadness and sulking. Jesus, surely you wouldn't expect me to do that. They do not get it. They do not have an awareness that any one of them is capable of betraying Jesus. Not just Judas. And in Luke's account, and if we read on in Mark, we also see that they start arguing about who is the greatest. And Peter is told by Jesus that he will deny him. And Peter is so off kilter at this point that he denies even his denial. He's in denial about the upcoming denial. It is far from the ideal send-off. What does Jesus say into this situation? Verse 22 to 24, he says, While they were eating, Jesus took bread gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. The room is filled with disciples who are on the brink of betrayal, denial and desertion. 
Jesus says, I love you anyway, and I am about to go into enemy territory and accomplish a far bigger rescue than the one you are currently celebrating. I am about to rescue you from sin and death, not just Egypt. And I am about to bring you into a new covenant. And this covenant is marked by my blood. The love that Jesus has for his disciples is in spite of, it is despite of what he is getting in return. We love with conditions. Jesus loves without conditions. And this is why Paul says in Romans that God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus doesn't wait until he's getting something in return. He couldn't. He'd be waiting forever. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Tim Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, says this. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved, well, that is a lot like being loved by God. And it is what we need more than anything. Jesus fully knows what these guys are about to do. And he loves them in spite of it. And he says, I will accomplish something which brings you into a completely new type of relationship with me. What's interesting about Passover is that they celebrate the extracting of God's people from Egypt into freedom freedom from slavery. But it doesn't end there. God doesn't just rescue his people into a void. He rescues them, giving them freedom for relationship. The covenant is established on Sinai with Moses. I will be your God. You will be my people. Your side of the deal is you keep my law. My side of the deal is I will be your God. But we know from the history of Israel that Israel failed time and time again. And the covenant is broken again and again and again. But we know that this would not always be the case. Jeremiah, in chapter 31, said that the days are coming declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand, when I led them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more.
When Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant, of the new covenant, he is saying, I will meet both sides of the agreement from now on. I will be your God and I will give you everything you need to be my people because my law will not be a weight on your back reminding you of your inability to live up to it. It will live within you. I will put my spirit within you, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. A new covenant in my blood. Nicky Gumbel in his Alpha Talks describes the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant uh, as similar to perhaps a day walking in the mountains. At the start of the day, you have a heavy backpack full of food and resources, and it is weighing you down. It is a pressure on the outside. As the day goes on, you begin to eat the food, you stop for lunch, you stop for snacks, you drink the water. And it, what was a weight on the outside becomes fuel on the inside. It gives you strength on the inside. This is the new covenant. It's worth asking the question, do we live practically in the old way or the new way? Do we live more as if our relationship with God is a weight on our backs? Or do we live as though the Spirit has been given to us, that the law has been written on our hearts and minds? Extraordinary things are declared in this seemingly insignificant meal that has eternal significance for the people of God. And we know that it will go far, far beyond Israel. This is my blood of the covenant which is shed for many. And in fact, Mark himself is a Gentile and he is brought in. This is my blood, not just the blood, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. The disciples have come to remember how God rescued them from Egypt. Jesus says, I have come to rescue you from sin and darkness and to bring you freedom from slavery to sin. The disciples have come expecting to sacrifice a lamb. Jesus said, I will give my lamb. There will be no need. There is no lamb at this meal. There is only bread and wine. I will be the one to bear your sin. I am that lamb without blemish or defect. I am the once for all perfect sacrifice that takes away the sin of the world. And the disciples were mindful of covenant with Moses. But Jesus says, I am inaugurating a new covenant. I will write my law on your hearts. I will fulfill both sides of the agreement. I am bringing you freedom for relationship. And you will all know me from the least to the greatest. Do you know him? Do you know this relationship? Is it a weight on your back or is it a fuel from within? How well do you know him? This is a God who sees the seemingly insignificant things and says, these are significant to me. 
a God who upholds human choice, even in his unfolding plans, and a God who loves us despite failure, and who calls us and pursues us while there is still hope. Do you know him? The invitation is always here to begin. Perhaps some of you uh, have not known the Lord. Many of us do. The invitation is always there to deepen this relationship that is on offer. It has come at a high price. Amen.